0: Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. And Kristen, today we're going to talk about happiness, so I want you to stay in a good mood, but I do have a small confession to make to you. Okay. Sometimes... When I am in the vicinity of your home, which I know where it is, but I won't say on the podcast. Thank you, Molly. I'm compelled to like rob it. <laughs> to like rob it? And to rob your house. There's one thing that I would want to take from your house if I could.
0: I think I know what that is, Molly, because the last time you were at my house, you tried to steal it.
1: Yeah. Um, it's this yearbook picture of Kristen. And it's
0: the most adorable photo ever because I was an adorable child. Uh, but she's, was it third grade? No, Molly, that was, I think that was uh
1: um K4. Oh, okay, so she's around that age. She's young and cute, and she's just got the biggest screen you could possibly imagine.
0: Yeah, I, I was really proud of myself uh, at that phase because I just lost both my front teeth and I had a rockin' mullet. Yeah. And I was wearing my favorite uh, T-shirt dress that my mom had made me with a matching bow. And that picture was taken right after... Playtime as well, so I I was just as happy as could be. You're ready right to go, yeah. It's it's the kind of photo that I would want to like try and
1: sell to an a photo agency because they could use it as the stereotypical happy child. Whereas my yearbook photos, the smile's a little bit more forced. I'm usually caught off guard by the photographer. It's, it doesn't capture my true happy essence.
0: Well, Molly, um, researchers have been doing a lot of investigation into. How much your smile reflects authentic happiness, did you know? know. Because right now the science of happiness is Exploding. It started back in the 1990s with a guy named Martin Seligman, who is the former president of the American Psychological Association. And he decided that instead of figuring out why people become depressed and looking so much at these negative emotions, why not find out more about happiness and what makes us happy and what are the, what are the characteristics shared among the happiest people? So we have this new branch, relatively new branch, of psychology called positive psychology that really focuses on the science of happiness. Um, and they pay a lot of attention to smiles. You've run across some of these studies, right, Molly? Yeah, I found this study recently about, you know, they, they basically go back to these yearbooks. They're going to
1: go back and look at adorable little Kristen and semi- for smiling little Molly and they might look at us in like 20 years and see if we're still married. They're saying that, you know, your marriage can predict your, I mean, your smile can predict your marital success, uh, which is a lot of weight to put on like a five-year-old child. I really hope one day to say to my kid, better smile or you're
0: getting divorced. <laughs> That's, Life lesson there, Molly, that you you'll impart to your children um, yeah, speaking of the these smile studies there was a, there was one that I found that tracked one hundred and forty one high school seniors into middle age, and I think these were all uh, female students and they characterized the smiles in the photographs as either Duchesne smiles, which are caused by more muscle contractions and reflect authentic joy, supposedly. Like Kristen's photo. Like my photo. I was just a Duchesne child. Um, whereas Molly probably had more of a Pan-American smile, which is a little more rigid and posed. A not- little forced. A <laughs> little forced, Molly. So, um, In this study, they found that uh, down the road, this study found that the Duchesne smilers reported more of life satisfaction and had more marital and relationship success than the Pan American Smilers, which I say take it or leave it. I mean, you know, that's a, a, can a yearbook photo really, really predict that much. Well, that's the thing about studying happiness
1: in general is it's so subjective. You know, th- the best I can say is that, you know, if you smile authentically when you're a child, it just means that you might be a happier person overall, which means that once you get married, you might be more willing to work it out. Uh, have a positive outlook on your marriage. So it's, it's a lot of sort of gross generalizations in my opinion, but you can't deny that everyone's studying happiness who can get a grant to do so. Mm-hmm. They're studying whether certain cultures are happier, whether, you know, certain ages are happier. And of course, this comes down to one of the biggest differences of all. And that's why we're going to discuss it today are men or women happier?
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, there were a lot of large-scale happiness studies that have been going on, like you mentioned, global studies. Uh, for instance, um, there's this thing called the, uh, I think it's the World Happiness Map that has mapped out the happiest places in the world. Denmark is, is number one. I, I don't know why, but they are, so maybe I'm going to go to Denmark for my next vacation. Um, and they've broken down these, all this data into, uh, male and female trends. And overall, in a lot of these large scale surveys, as a group, women come out on top a little bit. A little bit more happy. Yeah. Um, and this is based on uh, the Pew Global Attitudes Project that surveyed 38,000 men and women across 44 countries and the Nielsen Happiness Survey that was conducted in 51 countries. But Molly, once we start breaking those groups down into different age groups and different nationalities, some differences do emerge, correct?
1: Right. Uh, women from certain countries, including kind of surprisingly to us, Pakistan, Japan and Argentina are much, much happier than the men living there.
0: Mm -hmm. It seems like uh, the women uh, in these surveys tended to uh, focus more on personal and domestic issues that they might have more control over. Right, where they're saying the men are just
1: burdened by the weight of the world. And they look out and there's, you know, there are wars, there's a recession, and that weighs more heavily on the men, whereas women are just worried about grocery shopping. Mm-hmm. But see, then once you kind of flip that and take these sort of ideas about what men and women are preoccupied with and take it to the United States, that's where the women don't hold up quite as well.
0: University of Pennsylvania researchers in 2008 found that American women today aren't as happy as they were 30 years ago. And this is kind of surprising when you look at happiness data for Americans in general, because uh, we've been doing these kind of surveys since about 1970, 1972. and American's happiness level has been just pretty much flatline. We mm-hmm. haven't, we're about as happy as we were 30 years ago, supposedly, but women aren't as doing quite as well.
1: And like you said, it's, it's pretty surprising because think of all the things that women have accomplished in the past 30 years. You mm-hmm. know, we've got a lot more women in the workplace, uh, which seems to indicate that women have more license to sort of follow their dreams, have a career, be on equal footing with men, that, you know, they're not just sitting at home raising children. Uh, and so some, you know, in my mind, kind of snotty researchers are saying, you know, those 50 stereotypical housewives didn't know what they were missing. They were kind of blindly happy. And now that women are getting out in the workforce – And having dreams come true or not come true, they're, they're less happy basically.
0: Yeah. The horizons are broadened. So you have more of an idea of what you don't have rather than, you know, a a more limited sphere of things that you, you can control. The University of Pennsylvania researchers equated this shift in mood or happiness of, of women, American women, um, to a nation that has gone from a 4% to 12.5% unemployment rate. It's that same kind of drop in morale. And it's not just, you know, the University of Pennsylvania, maybe they're just, you know,
1: unhappy, but they found the same thing at Princeton. So maybe the whole Northeast is unhappy. But basically what Princeton did was they looked at common activities like gardening and watching television, things that should make you happy um, versus things that you just sort of have to do like paying bills, household chores. And it seemed that women were spending more time on the ungratifying task, about 90 more minutes than men uh, on average. So some researchers say that this might reflect more still the second shift idea that women have to work. That's very gratifying to them. They go off to work. They might be happy with that, but then they've got to come home and have this second job taking care of the house, whereas men have been able to sort of just stay with the same level of housework, job, Sitting in front of the television.
0: And Molly, if you if you look at uh, this research broken out into the different activities that men and women are doing, I think it also reflects the impact of the aging boomer population. A lot of these women are now having to not only come home and possibly care for children, but they're also having to care for aging parents. There is a, a pretty stark contrast between the uh, enjoyment level of from between men and women of having spending time with their parents. Twenty seven. Percent of of women found time with parents as being more burdensome and more of a chore, whereas only seven percent of men found it to be enjoyable. Unenjoyable in this in this survey
1: because they're less likely to be the main caregiver, so they can go over, watch television, hang out. Whereas if a woman goes over, she might be more likely to be paying all their bills, mm-hmm. um, you know, arranging medications for the week, and so. What this research really kind of indicates is that women have a lot more, so they have to juggle a lot more. Like, yes, they have this new career that might be fulfilling, but it's a ball in the air with all these other balls.
0: Exactly. Um, and when you break down specific age groups of women, there is yet another interesting trend that emerges. Because at first, when we're younger, and Molly, you and I are in our mid-20s right now, if uh, we average it all out, we are going to be probably happier than men at this age and hooray, hooray. Yeah. Which I mean, it's a pretty generalized statement, but the thinking behind that is, uh, women are more apt in their younger years to get things that they'll find more fulfilling, such as, you know, finding a mate and settling down starting a family building a home whereas men are at the bottom of their career ladders and having to slowly painfully climb up it and try to make more and more money which I don't know that I buy that completely but that is the general logic behind it but uh, there was a study in the journal of happiness studies that established 48 at the age of 48 when a men's happiness actually starts to overtake Women's happiness.
1: And so while women are on this downward slope, the men in in the meantime have gotten into management positions, life is just chugging along, and then to even add to their happiness at age 64, men appreciate their families even more than women.
0: Yeah, it's like they're finally at the top of their careers. They can kind of kick back. Hopefully they've saved up for retirement. And now they can really start looking around them and saying, hey, look at my beautiful family. Look at maybe my young, adorable grandchildren. This is so great. And women are still supposedly grappling with, uh, you know. Identity. Yeah, unfulfilled dreams and identity. Uh Thanks, researchers. Yeah. But, but Molly, it's not all bad. Tell me why. Well, okay. First of all, all these happiness surveys, I mean, it's just, you're going to find conflicting results in them. Such as a 2008 University College of London survey found that women over 50 years old were more optimistic than their male counterparts. So it might depend where you live. Yeah, it could be geography. Maybe it's just the American dream ain't so cheerful after all. For the ladies. Dark, Kristen. I know. But I know you like darkness because you like the
1: idea of anti-happiness, right?
0: I do a little bit. There's th- this whole idea of posit- positive psychology and searching for the new science of happiness has kind of been overblown so much that there's now this kind of backlash of anti-happiness literature that's coming out that's saying, hey, okay, we all want to be happy and that's fine, well, and good. But let's not forget that uh, sometimes the best times in life are met because you've overcome a struggle. Mm-hmm. Like there can be definite value in having to overcome hardships in life that make things really worth living and really genuinely joyful. Right. Right. So, there But, you
1: go. I mean, we'll go ahead and buy into this happiness idea, and I know that you are very much in love with the grant study.
0: Yeah, there's this uh, awesome study, and yes, I just said awesome study. Um, it's a 72-year study that's taken place at Harvard University that tracked over 200 male students since they were freshmen at Harvard. And now, I mean, a lot of these guys have actually gone and they've died. A lot of them are, you know, in old age, in their 80s, and it has tracked their happiness throughout life to try to find out what what makes a happy man. And one of the biggest findings that's come out of this research, because you know these are Harvard graduates, they had some of them didn't all have you know uh, wealthy upbringings, but they leaving Harvard, you would think that they were all kind of on the equal footing to succeed. At the end of the day, 72 years later, the biggest finding from the study is that it's not social aptitude or intelligence or social class that leads to happy aging. Relationships, Molly. Relationships matter more than anything else, and this is something that I've seen in uh, all of these happiness articles that have come out. At the end of the day, the the biggest predictor of happiness isn't male or female or smart or unintelligent or what have you. It's the social networks that you build. It's when things go wrong, are you going to have a network there to help you recover? Sounds good. So if I
1: could sum up everything I've learned so far in this podcast. You can just smile big for your yearbook photo. And then when you order the prints, you give them to as many people as possible to start
0: building your social networks, right? There you go. And pass your yearbook around to get them to sign them. So you build, yeah, make more friends. And Molly, we do have one more silver lining for all of this happiness research. But by and large, when we get older, people are just happy. People, Older people, male or female, are happier than younger people. And that's because, you know, despite maybe unfulfilled career dreams or hardships along the way, hopefully by the time we're in our 70s, we can sit back and look at all the things that have happened and say, well, I made it this far. That's something to be happy about. (laughs) And if all else fails, just look at
1: cute pictures of kittens on the Internet. Kittens. That's happy. That's very happy.
0: Hey, you know what makes me happy? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Talking at the same time. Um, listener mail. Listener yep. mail is very happy making. Yeah, uh, listener mail, well, nice listener mail at least, makes Molly and me happier than a lot of other things at work, it seems. So let's read some mail.
1: <laughs> so, uh, first mail I wanted to read came as a response to our Is Roller Derby Sport or Spectacle podcast. Uh, it's from Monica. Who writes, Thanks so much for doing an episode on roller derby and explaining what the current sport is like today. Um, people still have so many misconceptions as to what derby is, and she thinks that we are correct when we said it is sport and spectacle. She says it's insanely hard work, it's athletic, it's sexy, it's empowering. And then, Kristen, special message to you since you were talking about your roller derby dreams, she told you don't give up on skating. Monica just started skating for the first time last November. She was all over the rink falling and being lopped by five-year-olds, and she assumed she was crazy for even trying... But just a couple of months later, she's a skater. She can pick it up. So do not give up. I, I would say if you want to see Kristen on roller derby, let's write in. Let's make it a
0: ride in campaign. Thank you, Monica, for those encouraging words. We had another uh, former roller girl, Roxilla Rampage of the Jet City Roller Girls ride in. And she said, I've listened to your podcast about roller derby. And one important thing that was not mentioned was the amount of time that these women dedicate to the sport. As a former roller girl, I would spend a minimum of six hours each week. Week for practice and or bouts and that was at the low end of time dedicated to the sport this is not the type of hobby for people who are just looking to be a weekend warrior and i will say that when i talked to tanya hyde with the atlanta roller girls that was one thing we talked about was that girls are out there skating probably five times a week so I mean, and that, I'm sure that's at least six hours. So these these women are always out there skating, getting better, and then competing in bouts. So something for you to keep in mind, Kristen? Yes, time management.
1: And then one last email. We do not have uh, this person's name, but we loved the email. Uh, she listened to the podcast, What Does a Feminist Look Like? And she quite agreed with a lot of what we talked about, particularly about how modern day women do not want to be labeled as feminists because of the negativity surrounding the word, especially teenagers. Uh, she wrote, I usually do not like labels and especially stereotypes, but I am proud to call myself a feminist. I am Mexican, which is a very male dominated culture, and that has influenced my beliefs especially. I do not shave my legs, but I don't mind wearing a little black dress now and then. I am 15, and I've been voicing my opinions on the subject ever since I was young, and at times, naive 10 year old. And the podcast inspired her to go out and buy a This Is What a Feminist Looks Like t-shirt. So. 15-year-old ready to put the feminist label on her, even with the negative stereotypes. And I'm sure she was not that naive a 10-year-old. Yes. Sounds very mature.
0: Yeah. Awesome. So if you guys want to write us, we've got an email address. It's momstuff at com. And if you want to read more about happiness and how to get happy, you should head on over to com.